Last week we considered the intra-Trinitarian love of God. Love has flowed with perfect and unceasing fullness between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Since God is perfect goodness in Himself, and since there is no greater good than God, God would be evil not to love Himself with an infinite fullness. We, by contrast, are not perfectly good. There is a being greater and purer than we. And we are not triune beings. So to love ourselves as the highest quest is not good, but it's selfish and it's idolatrous. But as the ultimate good and with infinite pleasure, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves God. The question I'd like us to consider today is, does God love you? Does God love you? Now that question easily slides off of us like a short downpour runs off of a dry sun-baked hill in summertime. It just runs right off. I don't want you to think about that question like the Sunday school answer. Does God love us? Yes, He loves us. I want you to let that question soak into your heart. To penetrate your spirit. Does God love you? Not the textbook answer, but what your soul witnesses to you. Does He love you? As people answer this question, as they approach the question, they land somewhere on this spectrum, as this uh, graphic indicates. We have on one end of the spectrum those who would answer this question, how could God love me? I'm so unlovable. I could list the reasons. I could tell you what I've done. I could tell you who I am. How could God love me? On the other end of the spectrum, and perhaps more common in our day than it's been in past ages, is this answer. How could God not love me? I'm so lovable. This is what God does. That's what people do. That's what everybody has said to me all my life. How wonderful I am. Of course God loves me. There's mediating positions between the two. We might start on the other side of that scale, back to the beginning. God might love me if I qualify myself to be loved by Him. I have to do something to earn that love. I'm not sure how I'm doing, and often people saying this are very anxious and putting forward religious efforts and seeking to gain the love of God through their energies. And then I think there's this response. God should love me, but does not seem to. I want to be where that end of the scale is, how could God not love me? That's what God's supposed to do. I, I should be loved. But I can't say that I feel it. I can't say that I see it in my life. He should love me. But I really don't know that He does. 
the focus of these four responses on the line below, how could God love me, is really focused on my sin, my unworthiness, my failures before God. I've hurt a lot of people. I've done a lot of things I shouldn't do. And I can't imagine that God would look down upon me with favor and with love. The second view is based on my merit. I I don't know if I've done enough. I'm trying, I'm striving, I'm going after things. In fact, there's churches that are filling today across this land and across this world where people are going to church in order to achieve this. By participating in the life of the church, I might merit God's love. The focus of the third box is my circumstances. God should love me. That's what God does. He loves people, but he's certainly not loving me. And there's a list of evidences for this that well up in the person's mind. This is not there. This is not there. This has visited me. I'm facing this situation. He doesn't love me. I don't really know why. I can tell he loves other people, but not me. And then the fourth box, the focus is on my worth. I'm innately worthy of the love of God. I should be loved by God. And even though this may not be very faithfully articulated, there are people who walk in this orientation. I deserve God's love. That's what human beings do they deserve the love of God? If you sit down with many people and talk about God and what we hold in common, many will say, Well, this is what we hold in common God is love, and God loves people. It's just a fact, He loves me. As commonplace as these orientations are, I would suggest to you that they are all entirely wrong. If you think about God's love from anywhere within this spectrum, and we all do at times, you are feeding the restlessness of your soul and you are fueling your own struggle with sin and spiritual weakness. The very way that you tackle this question in your mind, again, not the Sunday school answer, not the glib, yes, we know the facts, but really analyzing yourself and your relationship with God, if you are operating in this scale anywhere, you've missed it. Does God love me? The only answer that satisfies the soul, because it's it's the only answer that is real, is to look away from self and to look to God to keep looking there, and to hear what he says. What does God say? I invite you to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, as we consider this question, does God love me? Not looking at it from these angles, as this text does not, but as we come to Romans chapter 8, there's obviously a lot of book in front of it. 
And Paul starts at verse 31. We're kind of just picking it out of the book of Romans today to answer this question. But at verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? Well, there's a lot of things that he said to this point, and probably particularly focusing on chapters 5 through 8. Romans is a treatise on salvation from eternal judgment, the judgment that we deserve as violators of God's law, a salvation that's based not on our good works, but based on the grace of God extended to us in spiritual union with Jesus Christ who died to purchase our forgiveness and was raised for our justification. Paul has been working out that theme through the book, and now he says, what shall we say to these things? How do we conclude on these things? Romans 8, the we. Who's the we? How do we conclude on these things? What shall we say about these things? Who are the we? We've got to get this straight. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. We're going to look in context. Who's he talking to? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He's speaking to those who have been set free from the law of the flesh, from the law and its condemnation. There is now no condemnation because they are in Christ. That's who he's talking to. If there's any doubt, verse 12 continues to confirm that focus. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then, brothers. That is, so then, family of God. So he's talking to. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, past tense. Verse 28, we know that those who love God, that's who he's talking to. And in verse 30, those that he has predestined, those that he has called, those that he has justified, and those that he will glorify. In fact, considered here as a done deal. That's who he's talking to. Is there any question? He's talking to those in Christ. To such people, to his own people, God reveals his love in these verses along two parallel lines. Does God love me? Is he for me? Number one. I would put it this way. Yes, ponder the display of God's love for us. Think about it. Contemplate it. Focus on it. Center in on the display of God's love for us. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These things, the mighty works of God in salvation history that united us by faith to Jesus, these things constitute the unimpeachable evidence that God is for us. How, how do you read the word if? Verse 31, if God is for us. How do we read that? If perchance God should happen to be for us? Do we read it that way? No, we read it since God is absolutely for us as displayed in his awesome works of salvation that Paul's been describing through the book. 
since God is for us, if he's for us in that sense, and indeed he is, Paul's been trumpeting the revelation that God is for us through eight chapters. So we take it as since God is for us. How do you read the words for us? I don't think the point is a general feeling of positive regard about us. God kind of looks down us and says, you know, I'm pulling for you, friend. I'm for you. Reading it in the context of the book, what Paul is saying here is that God is for us in that God is laboring from eternity past for our salvation through the sacrifice of His Son, the most costly of all gracious acts. God is for us in Christ. He is working for our good in this salvation message. If God is for us, chapters 5 through 8, if He is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand in the way of what God is doing in His love for us? If God is for us in this cosmic, history-transforming sense, what adversary is going to stand up to Christ? Let me ask it another way. Paul says, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who are we? We are sinners by nature. We do not have to learn to break God's law. We say nasty things about people. We entertain wicked imaginations. Our hearts bubble over with greed and pride, selfishness and lust and anger. We are lazy, we are self-protective, we are indulgent, we love some things too much and we love other things too little. We're broken. And in this vile, immoral condition, when we were by virtue of our sin, the very enemies of God, chapter 5 and verse 8, God the Father delivered His Son over to death for us. It's not because God is this half-blind, half-deaf, grandfatherly God who just doesn't recognize what we do wrong. Like an old watchdog about the keel over, we can sort of slip by unnoticed. He knows everything wrong that you have ever done. That I have ever done. That I've ever thought, ever said. Every emotion that's gone through my being that is against His will, He knows it to the bottom even more than we know it ourselves. And in this vile, immoral condition, when we were by virtue of our sin the very enemies of God, He handed over His Son to die. He gave Him over. He did not spare Him. You see those two phrases in verse 32. He didn't spare Him. He gave Him up. Echoes of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham gave over Isaac to death. Of course, he was spared. The Son of God on Calvary's hill was not. It's also an interesting echo here, not only of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, but also of Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to their sin. In like manner, 
On the other end of the scale, God gave over his son to pay for that sin. His own son. Think of it from last week, enjoying the infinite love and fellowship of the triune being from eternity past in perfection of love. Now he gives that son, his only son, in this one triune being over to death, over to the cross, to die a hideous death. Think of it again in verse 32. He did not spare his son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave Jesus up for you, how will he withhold anything, anything for your good? And again, I want to get past the Sunday school answer here. Does God work all things together for good? Yes, he does, and we move on. We've got the answer there. I mean you I mean, what you're dealing with in your life, do you imagine that God would withhold anything good from you when he's handed over his son? He gave up his son to save you. What will he withhold? It's not nearly as helpful a picture, but perhaps it jogs our thoughts. Imagine a father takes his seven-year-old daughter on a great adventure. It's a 10-mile hike on the Superior Hiking Trail. It's going to take all day. And she is so excited to go with her dad on this hike. They're on the hike all day, and it's getting hot. And in the afternoon, she as the trail veers near a little town, she sees an ice cream stand. And she says, Dad, can we get an ice cream cone? This little seven-year-old girl, she's hot and sees the sugar and desires it. Says, can we just get an ice cream cone? And Dad says, no, honey, that's not a good idea. Not right now, not in this heat, not on this trail. I, I really don't, we're not going to get it. We're not going to stop now and get an ice cream cone. And she throws a little fit. She starts to pout and she starts to whine and she is really angry with her father. The day starts to pass and he just believes that the best way for them to continue down this trail is if he just takes a short little nap. He's going to sit down under a tree and he says to his daughter, don't go anywhere. I'm just going to let my head rest here and just get a little bit of sleep and we'll be on the trail and back again. But as he falls asleep, she disobeys and wanders off into the woods. And he wakes up and realizes his daughter's gone. And he begins desperately to call and to search for her and he hears finally her voice way off into the wilderness. And she's really gotten lost. And she's in quite a pickle She's way out there in the, in the woods and it's a tough spot and he finally reaches her and he picks her up in his arms and he begins to walk back to where they left the trail. But some things really start to go bad. The sun is beginning to get pretty low in the sky and then it gets clouded over and it begins to rain. And in the rain, they hear in the growing darkness snarling. And they've come across a couple of wolves. 
Now dad's got his daughter tight to his chest and he does not know how he's going to get out of this. He didn't bring a gun along. He's thought about that now, but he didn't have one. So he's trying to get her out of the woods. And how do I get her back to the trail here? And those wolves attack. And he protects his daughter's body. He fights off these wolves. It's a terrible fight. He's bleeding. He's harmed in many ways. But he's able to send them off and fight hard enough to send them away. Still holding her to his chest, it begins to rain harder. It begins to thunder. And hail begins to fall. And it's just like a, the nightmare trip of all time. And he comes stumbling onto the road, finding his way to civilization. He is bleeding. He is muddy, having walked through swamps. He's absolutely beat up in every way, holding his daughter who's safe and unharmed. And he brings her to small motel room and rents it for the night and gets her all cleaned up and puts her in bed and she's all dry and warm and safe and she looks up at his at him with this sleepy face he's got blood running down his face he is in a wicked shape and she says daddy thank you you saved my life and now if you'll just buy me an ice cream cone tomorrow I'll know you love me We are that little girl. In all seriousness, she says to him, I need the ice cream cone to know you love me. That's who we are sometimes. Now I realize that the trials of life are a lot greater than an ice cream cone. I realize that the disappointments that we face are severe to us as the children of God. But in light of Jesus' bloody body hanging on the cross, so often we say to God, why me? Why don't you love me? Ponder the cross. Never get over it. We will endure many harsh experiences in life. Life will not work the way that we would like it to. But if God delivered over His one and only Son to save you, do you imagine that He will withhold anything you need in this world or the next? Those who see themselves here in that fourth box that we showed on the far right, those who see themselves as worthy of God's love, they need to see this text. It is dripping with the shed blood of Jesus as our sacrifice, dying in place of our sins. And we want to stand in light of this text and say, I deserve His love. What we deserve is His wrath. We deserve His judgment. But He comes to us in our sin knowing everything that we have ever done wrong and He gives us His Son. He delivers Him over to rescue us. Do we imagine He is going to withhold smaller things? Anything good for us? Well, that's God's side of the matter. But what about those who may accuse us? Maybe even Satan himself, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. I mean, that settles everything right there. While it is gloriously true that we choose Christ as our Savior, it is more glorious that we are enabled to do so because He chose us. We cannot explain it. We do not deserve it. We have not earned it. But God, in His mercy and in accordance with His eternal plan for the ages, chose to open our eyes to the beauty of Christ such that we see Him as beautiful and trust Him as Savior. If you are genuinely born again, you can know that the triune God determined to give you to the Son as your soul's shepherd so that His death would save you, that His life would be given to you as a gift. As Ephesians 1.4 puts it, He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us to be delivered from our sin. He chose to save us. And having chosen, He justifies us. That is, God, the judge of the living and the dead, passes an irrevocable verdict declaring us righteous now and for all eternity. He gives us the righteous standing of Jesus and thus nullifies forever any accusation of condemnation leveled against us. There is now no condemnation to those in Christ. The judge has spoken. The verdict is final. You can't mess with that. Continuing on that theme, he says in verse 34, who is then to condemn? Fourfold answer. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Third, is at the right hand of God now. And fourth, indeed, is interceding for us. Fourfold ascending chorus of proof that God is for us. Christian, Jesus died in your place to suffer suffer the punishment due to your sin. He rose from the dead to give you eternal life. Notice the third phrase, He is your Savior. And He ascended on high and reigns with sovereign authority with the Father. And He, as your Savior and Advocate, is interceding for you. That is, just as certainly as Jesus died for us, He is now praying for us. We agonize in prayer. We desperately seek His grace in the trials and in the attacks that we face in a fallen world. Remember this, believer. Jesus is also praying. Are you anguished? He's anguished. Are you praying? He's praying. Advocating for us before the Father's throne. And no one will defeat this attorney at this bar. No one. Ultimately, before the judge of the living and the dead, he is, as Douglas Moo has put it, ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died is applied to us in the judgment. Ensuring that the justifying verdict for which he died is applied to us in the judgment. That's your attorney. Standing before God the Father and saying, I died for him. I died for her. Case closed. 
He has all things covered. Now the focus on God's love only intensifies. You have a slight shift at verse 35 as that becomes the focus. In a sense, the, the, the room before the judge dissipates a bit and we come into this very specific conversation of the love of God. Does God love us? Ponder the display of God's love for us in His sacrifice, in His giving of Himself, in His judgment, in His intercession and the like. But secondly, yes, God loves us. Trust the invincibility of God's love for us. This is where we must put our trust. Verse 35. That's what will be brought out here in the next few verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How do you read love of Christ? The love of Christ. In context, the the, the love that Christ has for you. As a believer, as his child, Who's going to separate us from that love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul assembles here a list of heartaches we may suffer at the hands of others or in the circumstances of a fallen world. This list, by the way, is not theoretical. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul explains that he suffered these very things. He suffered tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the opposition of civil authorities, if that's how we take the sword. Appealing to Psalm 44, Paul reminds us that suffering is nothing novel for God's people. That's the point of the quotation, kind of a side quotation here, verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is, God's love does not deliver us from trials like sheep. We could be slaughtered any day. We don't know precisely what's going to happen to us, and we don't know when we might die. But God's love keeps us not from trials, but through them. Can the heart-wrenching agonies of life in this fallen world separate us from Christ's love for us? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let that settle in. And let me ask you, would you identify in your own mind the worst suffering that you have ever faced and continue to face? Maybe for you it's two or three things that come to mind. But think about the worst suffering that you face, the worst trial, the worst disappointment. What is the worst in life for you? In that moment, our temptation is to think, my suffering is bigger than Christ's love. My suffering is greater than Christ's love. My disease, my marriage, my abuse, my addiction, the consequences of a sinful choice or another sinful choice, my betrayal, my loss, my persecution, my being misunderstood, my death, the death of whatever I've lost and let go of, that's bigger than the love of Christ. And so I find myself back in that third box. He should love me, but he sure doesn't seem to. 
I am not minimizing the horrible pain that we can suffer in this world, and Paul is not minimizing it. But know this, believer, Christ's love is greater. His love is greater than anything we can suffer. We are indeed, he says here, more than conquerors. The Greek could be translated, we are winning a most glorious victory. We are prevailing completely. This isn't a theologian sitting in in an air-conditioned office with blind eyes to a fallen world. This is a man who has suffered greatly. And he says nothing compares to the love of Christ. We're more than conquerors. We are winning a glorious victory in the midst of the suffering. The battle in our pain then is to believe it. To believe God's declaration. And if you are saying right now, no, my pain is greater, you're going to remain spiritually stagnant until you learn to say by faith, Christ's love is greater. It is. It absolutely is, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're not going to take the time to work out precisely what each of these ideas means as the point is generally clear. But suffice it here to say, and perhaps at another time we can look through more pointedly, but suffice it to say that nothing in the universe, nothing that has been created, and he's talking here about the universe, but also about the unseen world of spirit beings, everything that has been created, put it all together, that's everything that's not God. Nothing there can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. The judge has spoken. The lamb has bled. The verdict has been rendered. No condemnation. I love this one. And nothing outside of that can ever change what God has said. We are conquering through his love. James Edwards says this so well. Grace is not an escape from this world and its dangers. Rather, grace stands before the yawning abyss and stark terror and confesses that they are no match for the invisible love of God. God's love cannot be defeated, nor will it let us go, ever. Does God love you? We naturally look inward as we answer that question. We think, let me think. 
Let me think how I feel. Let me think where I'm at. Let me figure out how that love is affecting me as if I'm the ultimate test and I'm the ultimate issue here. Does God love you? Puritan John Owen observed that the greatest of all sorrows is not even that we would come to the point of thinking that God does not love me. The greatest of all sorrows that we can bring to the heart of God is to doubt that He loves us. There's a sorrow of heart that God faces when He hasn't rescued a daughter from wolves and a storm. But when He's rescued a sinner from eternal judgment and we wonder if He loves us. We're not sure. That's how you pierce the heart of God. Owen observes, The greatest sorrow for God is that we spend our days questioning His love rather than communing with Him in that love. It's not about us. It's all about who God is and how He has chosen to rescue us from suffering His eternal wrath. Does God love you? If you're struggling with that idea, I plead with you to set aside your doubts, your pursuit of merit, your self-pity. The pity that puts the trials of life higher than His love. Does God love me? Look at the cross. Does God love me? Believe his word. He has said it. He has proven it. Believe him. Believe him by faith. For those who know not Christ and do not know his love and you've not entered in, you're, asking this, you're answering this question in a different way. You're saying, does God love me? I have no idea. I don't think so. I've not heard that he does. How would I know if he does? Listen to the words that Paul has written earlier in Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see yourself in that identification as the ungodly, as one opposed to him, as one who disobeys his word, as one who does not love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you see yourself there? He died for you. He died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin, chapter 6, is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a sacrifice for sin, only one, and it is Christ. And that sacrifice is held out there as a gift. God delights to pour out His deepest affections for us. Not on the basis of performance, ultimately, but grounded in the beauty and fullness of His infinite love. A love which flows to us, not simply so that we can cope with the trials of life. Draw that conclusion about this message, you've missed the whole thing. It's not just so that we can cope through the trials of life. It is so that we, in the love of Christ, can display to a lost world what the risen Christ has done. I'm going through this. I'm suffering this. And my heart is filled with joy. 
I walk in the love of Christ despite what this world throws at me. That's where this love is to take us. Where this love is to take us is to display the love of Christ to a needy world, to a lost world. It is then also to commune with Him in that love. And we get so overworked with our sin, with our merit, with our circumstances that don't seem to indicate the love of God, with our own self-worth and self-importance. We get so locked up in that that we look at the love of God and how it affects us from a self-oriented perspective. The whole point of it is that we would commune with God in His love for us. And so putting it together with last week, seeing what he has done, seeing the display of it on the cross in his coming, considering that his love is invincible, we then enter into the love of God, walking in that love, and in some sense joining in the intra-Trinitarian love of God. He's not all about proving to you that He loves you. That He has done. But He is calling you into a fellowship of His love through Christ to know God and be bound to Him by His Spirit. What glories await us as we contemplate that love and as we come to this table and consider what Christ has done here we observe the love of God for us in Christ.